before we go, let's, let's begin in prayer and ask God for his blessing as we come to his word. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we are mindful that you draw near to those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word, as Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen tells us. Our God, give us hearts that tremble at your word this morning. Give us humble hearts that we may receive with gladness all that you intend to say to us today. We pray this in our Savior's name, Christ Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. And we will be looking at the entire chapter. And so the, the, if you're new to the Bible or new to the church or new to Christianity, the large numbers are those big numbers. I'm sorry, the, the large numbers. Yes, they are big numbers. Uh, the lar- Thank you, Sesame Street. The, the large numbers are the chapter divisions The small numbers are the verse divisions. And you should know those aren't original to the Bible. That is, when Moses was writing Genesis, he didn't divide it up into chapters and verses like that. That was done later so that you and I and Christians could find their way around the Bible a lot easier, okay? So the verses and the divisions of chapters aren't original. That is, they aren't inspired by God, but they are really helpful, Otherwise, I'd be saying something like, find that place in your Bibles where Abraham sells his wife or gives his wife away a second time, and we would all be fumbling through the text for a long, long time. So here we have Genesis chapter 20, or page 15 in the Pew Bibles. Maybe we can follow along there. But as you're, as you're finding your way, we are beginning... Uh, another season, on the precipice of another season. No, I'm not talking about fall. It is almost football season. And so in honor of that, and because I love history, I'll bring a piece of football history for you that is especially especially important for Eagles fans, which are the only fans that the Lord loves, we think. And um, back in 1978, November 19th, The Eagles were playing the Giants up in New York. And there as they were playing, it was an ugly game. Both teams were trying to build something for the future. Trying to get something started. Both of their records were about even. But as a result of this, throughout this game, it was kind of an ugly affair, low scoring game. The, The the score towards the end with just seconds to go was the Giants 17, Eagles 12, and the Giants had the ball. And just seconds to go, all they needed to do was do what they had normally would do was to just take a knee. That is, the quarterback would get the ball from the guy, the big man in front of him who hikes it back, you go, okay, and he would get the ball and he would just take a knee and the clock would expire and the Giants would win the game, but they decided to run the ball one last time. And as the quarterback took the ball, he turned to, to hand it off to the running back. The running back missed it, and his attempt to try to shove it into his side as the running back was going, the ball gets fumbled. It bounces off the turf, up into the arms of Herman Edwards, who runs it back 26 yards for 
a touchdown for the Philadelphia Eagles. And one more example where the good guys win. All they had to do was take a knee. And the Giants would win the game. All they had to do was one simple action. And all that they had worked for that day would would end with a W, a win for them. But when they chose to run the ball one last time to kind of punish the Eagles, well, there's justice. There was a fumble. And we call it the miracle at the Meadowlands. Actually, Giants fans call it just the fumble game, just the fumble. But we remember it as the miracle of the meadow, at the Meadowlands, the, the first one. All they had to do was one simple action and they, they literally just fumbled the game away. And as a result of that, that very, the very next day, the offensive coordinator who called the play, he lost his job. And at the end of the season, the, the Giants coach lost his job. And very shortly, the Eagles, for the very first time that year, broke their drought of going to the playoffs. The, the, it was a turning point in, in both franchises. But it all turned on one simple running play that should never have happened. What we have here in Genesis chapter 20, is a similar instance where it looks like Abraham is fumbling away all the promises of God. If you walk back, remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God has put his people in a place, the land of Eden. He has given them a wonderful place to be. They are living under his word. They are experiencing blessing of being in fellowship with God and perfect relationship with him and with the world and with one another. Everything is as it should be, but it doesn't stay that way long. We know that Adam and Eve sin. They, they turn against God. And in doing so, in rebelling against God, everything is lost. They lose the land. They lose that experience of blessing. But the hope is that, there was, that God gives them, even at the moment of judgment, God gives them an element of hope. And he gives them this promise that there is coming one someday, a, a, a seed that will come And that one, he will crush the adversary. He will defeat sin. He will defeat death. And he will rescue and deliver God's people. And from that passage on, the entire perspective and hope is longing for that one to come. That seed, that offspring, that person, that individual. That's the heartbeat behind leading up to this passage. And that's why when we read in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham receiving the promise that he would have an offspring by Sarah and that through him the nations would be blessed. Those that bless him will be blessed. Those that curse him will be cursed. And he will have nations that come from him. All of this is massively significant. Land, seed, blessing, all of that which is lost in Genesis 3 is promised In Genesis chapter 12. But up till now, Abraham hasn't seen any of that come to fruition. Not not fully, not really. It's all dependent on him having a son by his wife, Sarah. And from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 17, is about a 24, 25 year history. 25-year period, 
But from Genesis 17 all the way to Genesis 21, that's about a a one-year period. And here in Genesis 20, this is the chapter, the last chapter, before Isaac, Abraham's son, is born. In Genesis chapter 17 and again in chapter 18, God has come to remind and to recommit himself both to Abraham and to Sarah that they would have a son even at their great old age. And he said, about this time next year, you will have a son. So we are, we are within the last year of that time period. He has been waiting for a quarter of a century about to be able to have this son. And now he knows there is an end date to this. About this time next year, I'm going to have a son. So, so the experience with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and God's justice and judgment there happens in verse, in chapter 18 and 19. And now, here we find ourselves, Abraham is waiting waiting for his son to be born. And it looks like Abraham is about to lose it all, to fumble it away, and to see the promises of God through his own faithlessness, to see them all come to nothing. So follow along as we see Abraham's failure and yet God's enduring grace. Abraham's failure and God's enduring grace. What we see here in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. If this sounds familiar, it's because this is almost the same exact thing that happened at the end of Genesis chapter 12. Abraham goes to Egypt. And in going to Egypt, he, he knows Egypt is kind of this crazy nation. Or he thinks that there, there are some kind of terrible people. And so he tells his wife, who is his half-sister, that she should call herself his sister, so that if someone asks, they won't steal her and kill him in the process. And so she does so. But here, Abram, right on the precipice of receiving the promises of God, fails yet again in the very same thing that he has failed before and been rebuked by the Lord for back in Genesis chapter 12. And it tells us that it is not only possible for genuine believers, genuine Christians to fall, but it speaks to how weak we are, how weak our flesh is. Here is Abraham, the man of God, the father of of our faith, falling in such a clear and despicable way. Decades have passed since this event in Egypt, and yet he is still falling. The intensity of sin and temptation and the weakness of flesh ought to warn us, brothers and sisters, that we are not morally strong people. But if we are able to obey God at all, it is because God in his mercy is propping us up. It is him strengthening us. 
we must remember that we ourselves, because sin is strong and because we are weak, we ourselves must set up boundaries. We must protect ourselves in some way. And when we sin, and and we will sin, the Bible is absolutely clear about that, just because you come to Jesus doesn't mean you stop being a sinner. It only means now you are a rescued and redeemed and delivered sinner. And we have been changed within. We have been given a new principle of spiritual life so that now we are able, by the Spirit's help, to fight sin. All of that is true, but we are still sinful. So when we sin, we must remember that we are able to, by the grace of God, come to the Lord. Jeremiah 3.22, the invitation comes from the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. In 1 John 2.1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And because Jesus is our high priest, we don't, we don't go to another religious leader. We don't need to confess our sins to any other person. We go immediately to Christ. Or as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, that we are able, because Jesus is our high priest, able to go boldly to the throne of grace. Even as we are sinners, we go immediately and boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus is our mediator. Because he has died and paid for our sin, we cannot be judged for it. He has drunk the cup of the wrath of the Lord for us so that there is nothing left for us to drink. So that when we come to him, 1 John 1, 9 tells us, when we come to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Because if Christ has paid for our sin and he has bought us and made us his own and by his death he has washed us clean, then that means that God cannot condemn us. For if God failed to forgive us, he would be unjust because that sin has been paid for. That is the good news. That is the current of the good news that undergirds everything that we, in, that we as Christians live and believe. So whether we feel the guilt of our guilt, so the weight of our guilt before God, or whether we feel the keen edge of shame, knowing that we... Maybe it's not our sin that we have done. Maybe it's something someone else has done to us. Yet when we come to the Lord, we are washed clean, made new. Though we are faithless, he is faithful. Though we have been unjust, he is just. And we ask, why does Abraham fall in this way? Why does he do it? And it's actually not we who ask it. It is Abimelech who asks this. After God has come to him and confronted him, he then goes to Abraham and he asks this question. Look at verse 8 to 13. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. That is, God is threatening judgment on them for what he has done in taking Sarah, Abram's wife. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. 
that Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? I want you to listen to Abraham's justification of himself. Remember, he has given his wife, almost as a human shield, he's afraid, we'll get get to it. Here's his justification. It's terrible. It it just, it's it's the kind of justification that if, if, you men who have uh, son-in-laws, if you had a daughter that Abraham married and he d- gave you this explanation of why he gave your daughter to someone else, you would punch him in the nose, okay? This, this, that's exactly what you do. And you'd be justified. Abraham said, because I, surely, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place. Wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So let's break that down. The very first thing we see is he, he, say, he, he looks at the, this place, this area of Gerar. He says, look, it's, it's a godless place they do not have they are no one here is fearing the lord no one is in any way respecting or revering god it is a godless place not only that he fears for his life because there is no fear of god in that place he says and they will kill me on account of my wife apparently even at this age sarah is a beautiful woman. And so she is taken by Abimelech to add to his harem. And Abraham's fear, and this is, this is why I say it should just, if you're a dad that has a daughter who's married and the son-in-law gave you this excuse, you'd want to punch him. Basically what he is saying is, I, I was afraid that I would get hurt, so I gave, your, I gave my wife, your daughter, away and I allowed her to be taken Sorry. I mean, that is just terrible. That is just terrible. He's afraid for his life. He is using Sarah as a human shield. Don't get me, get her. Abraham, at least in this instance, he's the kind of guy who goes into the alley with Sarah and then when danger comes, he pushes her to the front and says, take her, there she is. This is, this is not someone that you and I are going to be this is, this is not an instance of respectability. And, and it's hard for us to, to line this view of Abraham up with the same picture we saw chapters ago when Lot gets taken and captured and Abraham leads courageously a group, a, a small group of men to kill all the enemy that no one else had been able, had been able to defeat and rescue everyone back. It's hard to put those two things together, isn't it? And yet, here we have it. Abraham, in one instance, he is bold. He is courageous. On the other instance, he's a coward. He's a coward. And he justifies himself by saying, she's my half-sister. I didn't totally lie. I mean, there's some element of truth here. And, and this is a different time period. They, they lived by different rules. He wasn't breaking any 
cultural laws by doing this. He wasn't even breaking God's law. It wasn't until later that God would mandate to his people that they were not to marry anyone in their own household or extended family. So Abraham, is, he's trying to weasel out of this. This guy, at this moment, he's, he's, he's despicable. And yet this is Abraham. Father Abraham. Brothers and sisters, one of the things that we ought to learn from this passage is that it is enormously unwise for us to idolize human leaders. It is unwise for us to idolize human leaders, to make them our mascots so to speak, religious or otherwise. To celebrate, or rather to to have celebrities, to have celebrity pastors in which we hang on their every word, celebrity leaders in which they are the ones we go to. Human leaders are not the destination. At best, we're like, we're like the GPS on your phone, sometimes helpful, but sometimes not, right? If you've ever gone to a familiar place and you put the GPS up, if it takes you a really weird route out of the way, takes you the wrong way, if you take GPS to our home, you plug in our address and you, and you come to our home, you've got to be a little careful because oftentimes it'll take you past our home and down the street. GPS can be helpful, And it can be frustrating. And that's what happens when we we make religious leaders or any human leader our, our mascot, our celebrity, the one that we follow without question. Because we as humans are sinful, because we fail, we will disappoint. And Abraham disappoints. He doesn't disappoint us only. Imagine being Sarah. Just, just for a moment, imagine being married to him at this moment. This is the second time he's done this. Brothers, human leaders are fallen leaders. And we will fail you. Do not live by the GPS of human leaders rather live by the map that scripture lays out. Look to God's word. Look to the Lord. We will fail just as you will fail. Only the Lord knows all things. We are limited in all things. There are several ironies here. The one, and I I hope you saw it, the one is that you notice Abraham's accusation about the people in Gerar? He looks at this place and he says, surely there's no fear of God in this place. And it begs the question, was Abraham using his wife in this way? Was that an act of fearing God? Was it fearing the Lord for him to encourage his wife to lie? Was it because he revered and respected and held the Lord in awe 
That he sold her out to protect his own skin? Back in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord told Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And it's obvious that even as Abraham is rightly able, as best we as humans can tell, he's able to say, okay, I'm in this new area. This is not a place where the Lord is feared. A for evaluation. F for hypocrisy. Even as he is rightly identifying the sins of the culture around him, he himself is failing to trust and fear the Lord himself. And this I think, is where you and I as Christians must be warned ourselves. Even as we look around the world and we may, be see, we may be able to clearly see faults, are we as able to look at ourselves and receive correction? Is it that we fear God or is it that we fear being uncomfortable? Is it that we fear our sin? Or is it that we fear to do sin in honor of the Lord? Or is it that we fear our sin being exposed? Is it that we fear not having control? So we micromanage and stress out about every little detail. Do we fear criticism and love approval? Fear losing our jobs because we love the security that it gives us. Do we not fear God, but we fear on missing out? Do we not fear God, but fear boredom? We don't fear God, but we fear what people may think of us. Whatever it is, we are so easily able, so quickly, so quick to condemn, quick to evaluate, quick to diagnose the world's ills. And yet, so, so slow in admitting how you and I fail. And when we do, we do exactly, we fall in just the same way that Abraham did. Where Abimelech is the one who ends up with the moral high ground, basically able to confront Abraham for his hypocrisy. And Abraham, at the end, he doesn't even see it. He is still not admitting to any sin. He's still justifying himself, which is what hypocrisy ultimately does. It's not just lying to others. It ultimately it is lying to ourselves about how good we are. And yet what we see is that the grace of God, even though Abraham is at this moment despicable, even though he has some, come so close to fumbling away the promises of God, he is within a year, months, of having the promise of an heir finally fulfilled. And he gives his wife away. Yet God's grace endures. We see these two life-changing words in verse 3. Abraham gives Sarah away. Sarah is taken. Verse three, but God. But God, there's that grand reversal. We see that over and over and over again in the Bible. This is where we fail, but God. And the Lord intervenes. Though we are sinners, yet the Lord intervenes. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And he intervenes. We see in verse 3 and in verse 7, we see God's character in ways that we wish Abraham would have emulated here. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, and, and if we think that God is like a grandfather when he's just lackadaisical about sin, about faults of his grandchildren, he just covers it up. Verses 3 and verse 7 are bright and shining warnings. If we missed out on the, on the judgment of God in chapter 19, we cannot miss it here, the promise of judgment to Abimelech. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Don't you just love that? Here is the Lord, and he is, he, you are a dead man. He is just threatening him. And go verse 7, Now therefore... Restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God is not messing around here, is he? You are dead, and if you do not restore her, not only you, but everyone in your kingdom, everyone in your family, I will destroy them all. I mean, we wish we would seen a little bit of this in Abraham, right? This moral intensity. This is my wife. I'm going to protect her. But the failure you see in Abraham, you do not see in the Lord. He, he, he does not morally shift and change with the winds of culture. He, he is not cowardly in any way. God shows his character that he is morally upright and righteous in all his ways. And this is his servant. No matter how frustrating Abraham may be to the Lord and is to the Lord at this moment, Abraham belongs to him. You don't mess with him or his family. He goes on. We see not only that that those two verses illustrate not only God's character, but his, his power. I mean, here he is speaking to the king of this area. He's not, he's not speaking to someone who is Abraham's equal or, or, in, or, or subordinate. He is speaking to someone who has power. And it would be good and wise for us to remember at this moment in history that no matter what you see on the news, God is reigning and there is no power in the world outside of his control. And he will judge all peoples according to what they have done. We see also God's knowledge of human hearts. Look with me at verses 4 to 6. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. God knows not only does, he he saw not only the actions of Abimelech, he saw what was going on in Abimelech's heart, that Abimelech was, he was not going in to steal this man's wife. He legitimately just was deceived into thinking that Sarah was his 
sister, and so she was fair game for her to make his wife, and he was excited about that. And the Lord recognizes, oh, I know what was in your heart. I wasn't deceived. And this, this ought to warn us. And God is not deceived by appearances. He, he knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows what is going on internally. He sees us for who we truly are, which is both, in this instance, it is a blessing And it is so often a warning. Even the internal reasoning of our feelings are known to the Lord. But it goes even beyond that. Abimelech's words here, look, I didn't even go near her yet. I haven't gone into making her my wife yet. I I took her as my wife with the integrity of my heart. I didn't know what was going on. All of that, Lord, I I haven't touched her yet. It's okay, I'll return her. And I want you to see what the Lord says. He's not even going to give this ground away to Abimelech. Look what he he says at the rest of verse 6. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech here, he, he's like, look, I, I'll take the credit. I, I didn't do it. And God says, who do you think it was that didn't let you do it? This, this, this takes us to one of the mysteries that we have in scripture, one of the, the mysteries that exist in the world that God reigns sovereign over everything and yet we are still able to act and make real decisions. We are not mere robots. Here Abimelech says, look, this is what I did. I had these reasons. These are the, th- these are the choices that I made and I chose not to go into her yet. I have not yet gone into her yet. And the Lord says, who do you think it was that kept you from her? It wasn't the goodness of Abimelech's heart. It wasn't that he was righteous and upstanding. Ultimately, behind it all, it was the Lord acting. The Lord restraining. What this shows us is there is no room for pride. There is no room for excuses. There is no room for us to go to the Lord and say, look, this is my resume. This is why you should accept me. Perhaps you look at your life and you don't see any huge areas of failure. Think of yourself as a pretty decent person. You work hard. If you're married, you try to be a good spouse. Maybe you've been a good, maybe a good, good child or child to your parent. Maybe not the best, but you're better than most. You tried, if you're a parent, to be a good parent. You obey the law, you, you do things, and you, you see other people who have ruined their lives through poor decisions, and you have avoided all of that. What this passage does is it reminds us that we can't take credit for any of it. Abimelech went to the Lord, look, I didn't even touch her yet. And the Lord says, I know. And who do you think it was that kept you from her? The Lord, in his mercy, has continued to show enduring grace to Abraham. And you remember where this text leaves us. Abraham is months away from receiving the fulfillment of this promise. 
weeks away probably from seeing Sarah ultimately conceive. And if Abraham's failure, Abraham's failure here puts all of those promises of God in jeopardy. And if Sarah is taken away and there is no Isaac, then there is no Jacob. And if there's no Jacob, there's no 12 sons of Jacob, no, no sons, no patriarchs of Israel. And if there's no Israel, there's no Exodus. And if there's no Exodus, there is no Joshua in the promised land. And if there's no promised land, there is no King David. And if there's no King David, there's also no prophets. And if there's no prophets, there is no Jesus. Your hope for salvation, your hope for righteous standing before God, all depends on God's grace at this moment. God's enduring grace to put up with and to love someone at this moment, Abraham, who doesn't merit it. In the response of Abimelech to all of this, we see at the end of the chapter in verses 14 onward, then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Knowing that Abraham is a prophet, Abimelech blesses him. That's what's happening here. Abimelech is blessing him. And he gives him even land in the next verse. Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And just because he is blessing Abimelech, Abimelech is himself blessed. Just as we read back in chapter 12 that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse We see that coming to fruition, verse 17 to 18. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And ultimately what we see in verse 16 is the vindication of Sarah. Then to Sarah he said, this is Abimelech, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you. This justifies you publicly. This justifies you, vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was. And here in the New King James Version, it says rebuked. Best translated would be vindicated or justified here. Here he, she is justified. But if if Abimelech simply released Sarah back to Abraham and then in a few weeks it becomes known that Sarah is pregnant, you can imagine the doubt that would follow her and Abraham and the entire people of Israel for their entire lives. Was God genuinely fulfilling his promise to Abraham or did something really happen? And so with Abimelech, what he's doing here is he, in restoring her, he is also publicly vindicating, she is innocent. I haven't touched her. She has not been made my, she has not been, uh, we have not gone into one another. There has been no marriage consummated here. She is innocent in all things. 
And what we see at the end of this chapter that in every way, God fulfills his promises. For those who trust in Christ, for those who follow after the Lord, God's promises are not dependent on our perfection, but on God's persevering grace. On God's persevering grace. The promises of God will stand up even even when you and I fail. God's grace doesn't run out because our obedience comes up short. We are, at this moment, able to trust him at all times. Some of you are looking, able to look back on your life and you see some significant question marks. You see some failures. It may be that you wonder about the person you have married or didn't marry. It may be about the school you attended or how well you did in that school. Wishes you make. I wish I would have done this differently. I wish I would have done this better. I wish I wouldn't have done this. I can't believe that I did this and how that has affected my entire life. Some of you look back and the things that weigh most heavily on you are not the things you have done, although those things are there. But perhaps it's been on the things that someone else did to you. The promises of God endure. He will not fail you. We are justified in his, eye, in his eyes. We are washed clean. The blood of Christ has made us white in the sight of our God so that through his death on the cross we draw near and have full access. Therefore there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if there is anything you and I need to see in this chapter, it is that the grace and mercy of God endures even when we do not. As Romans 5, Paul in Romans 5 tells us, grace abounds. Where sin has abounded, grace abounds all the more. Before we close, I want us to remember that there is another individual in this chapter we've only made allusions to, and that's, that's Sarah herself. Sarah received the promises of God back in Genesis chapter 17, just, just weeks prior to this, really. She receives that promise, and then she is allowed by her husband, pushed by her husband, and given by her husband to another man. And if you could just put yourself in her sandals, 
for a moment. Imagine where she and her hope is. Imagine what she is, where her confidence is. Imagine what she is feeling in that moment. Betrayal. Can you imagine the betrayal she is feeling? The fear at, at night. Anger, frustration, all of those things, all combining. And the Lord rescues her. The Lord rescues her. Even when her husband fails her, the Lord will never fail her. And he will not fail us. Those words that Dan read for us earlier, I think are important for us to close with. Those words at the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39. This is what you and I must live in. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of our brothers and sisters in Christ at this moment in Afghanistan. And this has to be our hope at this moment now. That no matter what may be weighing on your conscience, no matter the, 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 the red in the ledger on, in your life, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, live in these words. And friends, if you do not know this Jesus as your Savior, if you do not have the confidence that when you stand before God, you will be accepted by Him through Christ alone, can I encourage you this week, would you seek me out? You can call the church. My number is on the worship guide. We would love to talk with you and to share with you the only hope that you and I can have before a holy God the one who will defend his people with such endearing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we marvel at the grace that you have shown to Abraham. We marvel at the mercy and the love that you show to Sarah. Help us, O oh God, to remember that our human leaders are only human. To remember that we need you at all times, for sin is strong and we are weak. Help us to remember that when we fail, when we are faithless, you will never abandon us because of your Son in Christ Jesus. It is in his name that we pray, in his name that we come, and it is his name that we hope. Our Savior, amen.